Good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here. Awesome to have you with us. Merry Christmas. It's that time of year. I want to say uh, hello to those of you joining us in our online campus as well. Uh, awesome to have you there. Uh, in our parent viewing rooms, that's a great option if you have small children that you prefer to keep with you during the service and anybody watching in our cafe area. Welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, a couple of quick things before we jump into the talk this morning. Uh, one, our legacy offering was a couple of weeks ago, but uh, if you missed the opportunity to participate in that, we take 100% of what comes in uh, to the Legacy Fund, and we give that away. And so uh, there's still time to participate in that. You can just mark Legacy on your offering envelope or uh, on your Church Center app as you give, and that'll be open through the end of the year uh, to give for the, the Legacy Offering for 2022. So if you still like to participate in that and you haven't yet, uh, there's still an opportunity. The other thing is uh, we have, uh, as was mentioned, five Christmas Eve services, one on Christmas Eve Eve, and then four on Christmas Eve. And uh, we'll be doing childcare for kids kids five and under for all of those services. So uh, if you would uh, be interested in participating with us and volunteering somewhere, whether that's with kids or whether that's with uh, greeting or making coffee or uh, any of the respective areas, even if you're not on a serving team, but you're like, hey, you know what? I could pitch in during one of those Christmas Eve services. Uh, we would love to have you. And that doesn't mean you're signing up for a team for 2023. It just means like, hey, I will serve on Christmas Eve during one of them. And so if you'd be uh, interested in doing that, just write Christmas Eve service on the back of your connection card and drop it into the giving station on your way out today. And that just lets us know that we could get in touch with you this week and plug you into a spot. Last year, we had uh, just under 2,000 people come to our Christmas Eve services. We're expecting probably that many or more this year. And we want to make sure we can serve everybody. So if you'd be willing to, uh, if you're like, man, put me in, coach. I'm sitting on the bench. I'm ready to go. Uh, we'd love to find a spot for you uh, on, during Christmas Eve during one of those services. So just write Christmas Eve serve, drop that in, and we'll get in touch with you this week. So uh, this is the season. Man, it's awesome. Uh, Christmas is a fun time of year. And one of the things I've realized as I get older is that uh, the older I get, the more complicated Christmas becomes. Because before I was married and had a family of my own, uh, Christmas was very, very simple, especially when I had like just left my parents' house and you're a poor college student and uh, you, you, know, you go home for Christmas and nobody's really expecting you to buy anything because you're a poor college student. And um, tell me you're a poor college student without telling me you're a poor college student is like, uh, you know, everybody's pitching in for dinner and they're like, bring some dinner rolls. When you get the assignment of dinner rolls, that's how you know, like, there's very low expectations of you during the holidays, right? And uh, the older I've gotten, and as I've had a family of my own, uh, Christmas becomes more complicated, and now you have to decide, okay, whose family are we going to go to? Are we going to go, are we going to do this like every other year, your family one year, my family the next? Are we going to try to do both in the same day? And then uh, some, some people, some families have even like layers of complications where you're like, your parents are divorced and your mom's remarried and your dad is a girlfriend and you're like, all right, how are we going to hit everybody's houses all at once, you know, and half day with these guys and half day with these guys. And maybe you're hosting Christmas at your house. And so you have a bunch of extended family that's coming over and that adds another layer. And then the more kids you have, that complicates Christmas because you got kids programs and you got Christmas presents and you've got your work party and your spouse's work party and all of this stuff going on, right? And you're like, man, I wasn't stressed about Christmas before, but now I am. And then you have all the decorating to do, the nativity set and the inflatable snowmen, right? And the Santa Clauses and all of those kinds of things and all the lights because you got to keep up with the Clark Griswold living next door to you who's got 30,000 lights on his house. And, and then it, it always comes down to this for me, real tree or fake tree? Because this is the line that separates the saints and the sinners, <laughs> all right? 
Let's just be honest, right? How many real tree people do we have? Lift them nice and high. Be proud. Yeah. Tree killers. Unbelievable. Don't you care about the environment, right? How about fake tree people? Fake tree people. Yeah. Pre-lit, baby. That's the way to go. And all of you real tree people are here like Christmas killers. Where's your Christmas spirit? And I haven't even mentioned all the presents yet, right? That's, that's not only the presents for your kids and family, but then you have like gifts for extended family members and the secret Santa with the cubicle next to you at work where you've got to figure out some kind of weird algorithm of how much do we really like each other. And so you get them a calendar and they get you a screwdriver set and you both act like you really wanted those things. <laughs> and I wonder if any of you have a day after Christmas tradition. A day after Christmas. I'll be the first to admit, even though I enjoy Christmas, and I know some of you are like, man, uh, we put up the Christmas tree before Halloween. So that's, that's some of you. And you're like, you know, again, all are welcome here. But um, that's one way to live your life. <laughs> but others of you, uh, I don't know what your day after Christmas tradition is, but for me, as much as I love Christmas and I love the season, and, you know, I, I'm not a Scrooge in that sense, but man, when, when Christmas is over, it's kind of over. Like, and I know some of you are like, we keep the tree up until April. We keep the tree up until springtime, you know, and that's fine. Uh, some of you like to keep the decorations up and, and for a long time. But for me, and maybe this is a little too dark to admit, but kind of like when the day after Christmas, when, when Christmas is over, it's kind of over. I'm kind of ready. Is anybody here like, the day after Christmas, I'm ready to take the tree down and get back to normal. Okay. There's a, there's a few godly people here. All right. Yeah. And, uh, and so what's interesting is when you think about the very first Christmas, what happened the day after Christmas? See, when you think about the, that very first Christmas over 2,000 years ago, the day after Christmas, everybody was ready to get back to normal. And here's why. Because for them, on that first one, on that very first day, nobody thought it was Christmas. Nobody was experiencing Christmas. They didn't, they didn't have a, a concept of Christmas. All they were experiencing was chaos. And here's why. In an effort to systematize and modernize and kind of a, get a sense of all of the citizens in the Roman Empire, how many citizens do we have and who should be paying taxes and who's still alive and kind of keep a record of this, here's what we discover in the Gospel of Luke. At that time, the Roman Emperor, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. And so here's what's going on. On that very first Christmas, they're not experiencing Christmas. They're experiencing chaos. Because the way that you find out who's still alive, I mean, this is a census is still difficult to do, even with all of our modern technology. And yet, in the first century, okay, how many people are still alive? How many people should be paying taxes? What's our current tax base? And it's difficult enough to find that out today. But in the first century, the way that you did that is you had to travel to your hometown, the town of your birth, and you'd go to your birth town, and you would have to register. And then once you registered, then uh, you were basically saying, okay, uh, I'm still alive. I should still be paying taxes. I'm a part of the, the empire here. And that wasn't a big deal if you still lived in your hometown. But if you didn't live in your hometown, you had to travel back to your hometown. And so here you have uh, people all over the Roman Empire who are traversing all across different ways and intersections. And, and traveling is very expensive. Traveling is oftentimes in this uh, era in human history very dangerous. And so nobody is really thinking about Christmas. They're just experiencing chaos. And the people are traveling all over the known world. And all they could think about was getting back home and getting back to normal. All right, we, we, we went to our hometown, we registered, now let's get back to normal. And what they didn't realize in the moment was that things would never be normal again. Because in the chaos of the census, 
A child was born. And this is a child whose birth would have geopolitical implications for generations to come. It would change everything. And the birth of this child, heaven came to earth. In fact, later on, uh, John, who was one of Jesus' followers and one of Jesus' closest friends and, and disciples, he would be reflecting on this time and how Jesus came into the world. And he would actually put it in these words. He would say, the word became human and made his home among us. The divine has taken on human flesh. The divine has become human. He's become one of us and dwells among us. And every single person whose life ever intersected with this child, from his birth all the way through his death and resurrection, every person who ever interacted with him and who ever intersected with him would simply become a footnote in his story. Peasants, governors, kings, and even Caesar himself would all become a footnote in the story of Jesus. And here's why. On Christmas, a king had been sent into the world. On Christmas, on that first Christmas, a king had actually been sent into the world. See, Jesus was not a religious figure. Jesus was a king. A king who would disturb and reverse the order of things. A king who would lay down his life for his subjects rather than demand that his subjects lay down his life for him. And then he would tell his subjects, you are to lay down your life for others. In fact, if it comes to it, you are to lay down your life for your enemies. And he would say these things not as a religious leader and not as a prophet and not as a rabbi and not as a teacher. He would say these things as a king. And the kingship and the lordship of Jesus is often lost on us. And it's lost on us in large part because of what the culture uh, that we live in has done to Jesus. And unfortunately, it's lost on us in large part because of what the church has done to Jesus. See, uh, for many of us, Jesus has been reduced to a call a friend, right? It's, it's, it, we shoot up a prayer in an emergency. We, we see the flashing lights behind us. We're on the side of the road. And we're like, oh, Lord Jesus, shoot up a rocket prayer to Jesus. Get me out of this ticket. And he becomes phone a friend. Uh, for some of us, he becomes a backup plan. And I'm kind of hedging my bets. So I've got this belief in Jesus. And, you know, I'm, I kind of keep Jesus in my pocket for when I need him. But I also just kind of live my life the way that I want to live my life. And it's not the kingship of Jesus. It's not the lordship of Jesus. He's kind of, a, he's kind of a backup plan for me. For some of us, we've reduced Jesus to a conscience reliever. And so I know that Jesus in his grace will always forgive my sins. And so whenever I, I feel that I've missed the mark, I go back to Jesus and I ask for forgiveness and that my conscience feels better. But I don't change the way that I'm living to actually align my life with his kingdom. Or maybe we just use him as a comforter. And God, you're there for me in the difficult times. But when things are going good, I just kind of live my life. And while Jesus' right to kingship in our lives, to be the king, to have authority in our lives, sometimes gets lost on us in our current culture, it was not lost on Mary, and it was not lost on Joseph. And here's why. When the angel came and made this declaration to Mary and Joseph, when the angel said, you're gonna, you're gonna, to, to Mary, you're going to give birth to a son, this is the language that the angel used. Listen to these words. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. Now, Jesus is actually the English word that comes from a Latin name that came from a, uh, a Greek name that came from a Hebrew name, Yeshua or Joshua, which means warrior. And he will be very great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor, David, and he will reign over Israel forever. 
You have to understand, this is incredibly royal language. He will be the son of the most high God. He, he's going to be the son of, of the greatest king, and his, his kingdom will never end. Right? And, and, and Mary was giving birth to a king, a ruler, a lawgiver, a judge, somebody who had authority. And what the angel said next is something that we saw play out throughout the first century in the church throughout the first century in the Roman Empire, and we've seen this play out throughout human history, the last thing the angel said was this, his kingdom will never end. His kingdom will never end, which means Jesus is still a king, which means Jesus, his kingdom has never ended. And the question that every one of us needs to wrestle with every single day, the question that I need to wrestle with, the question that you wrestle with, every day when I wake up and when I think about my priorities, when I think about the decisions I'm going to make that day, when I think about the person that I want to become, when I think about my priorities and how I'm going to prioritize my life, and when it comes to my time and my, my financial resources and my influence and my energy, the question every single one of us needs to wrestle with is this. Is Jesus my king? Is he my king? Or have I followed the path of culture or the tradition of the church I was raised in? Have I reduced Jesus to simply a conscience reliever? Have I reduced Jesus to uh, someone who I just call on in case of emergencies? Is he my phone a friend? Do I keep him in my pocket for when I need him? Have I reduced Jesus to simply an icon, you know, a cross around my neck or a, a tattoo on my ankle? Have I reduced him to a last resort? And here's the unsettling thing about Jesus and this sort of uh, somewhat unusual thing about the fact that this is the king who uh, allows us to decide. In fact, for Jesus, Jesus is the king who invites, he doesn't invade. He invites, he doesn't intrude. And when you think about that, it's so countercultural to the way that we understand kings and kingdoms in our world. When you think about how kings expand their kingdom, it is always through military might and conquest and power and invasion. And when you think about how Jesus expands his kingdom, it is always through an invitation to simply follow him. And when you and I choose not to follow the king, what we're saying is uh, we choose not to participate in his kingdom, in the kingdom on earth as it's reflected in heaven. And when we opt out of his kingdom, we miss out on his kingdom. When we opt out, we miss out. And, and I can trust him to forgive my sins, but Jesus didn't come only to forgive my sins. We've said this many times here that Jesus didn't just save us from something. He came to save us for something. Having my sins forgiven is just the beginning. That's what just initiates relationship with Jesus. But now I've been invited into something extraordinary, something so much bigger, something that I get to be a part of. He came to invite us to follow him, to make him our king, to make him our Lord, to become subjects in his kingdom, to allow our lives to reflect the values of the kingdom of God. And we've been invited into something absolutely extraordinary. And when we opt out, we miss out. And when we opt out, our faith gets reduced to a set of beliefs. It gets reduced to a set of doctrines. It gets reduced to a set of religious behaviors. And we do not experience heaven on earth as we are intended to and as we are invited to. Because the only way to experience heaven on earth is to participate in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and submit to the kingship of Jesus. And so on that very first Christmas, almost Everyone was experiencing chaos, and amidst all of the chaos, a king came into the world, and almost nobody knew about it. 
In fact, you could say this king was secreted into the world. And Mary and Joseph would have probably kept that secret until Jesus went public with his ministry if it wasn't for a few wise men who were searching for Jesus. Here's how it happened. We read this in Matthew. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Now, this is King Herod in history. He's called Herod the Great, and he was great. He was a uh, gifted architect. In fact, he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, he was a gifted uh, general and military strategist. He was a gifted politician, and he was absolutely ruthless. King Herod would do anything it took to make sure that his legacy was intact. In fact, it was his plan that each of his kids would become kings after him, and he would leave this incredible legacy. He built cities. He had an incredible reputation. And so this is Herod the Great. And about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, we, we kind of have this picture in our minds in sort of the in modern day Christmas and the nativity set. I know for me growing up, the nativity set always had the, the three kings and there was a star over the stable and uh, we, you know, they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so there was three kings and they followed the star directly to the stable. But if you read the accounts in the scriptures, it doesn't go down that way at all. So I, don't, I hate to sort of wreck your nativity set, but uh, the wise men, as far as we know, were not kings. They were actually court officials, probably from Persia or Arabia. And they, were, uh, they tracked the stars. They were astrologers, and they looked for signs in the heavens, divine signs. And, and they, they saw a new star that they hadn't seen before. And they came to the conclusion this meant that a new king had been born and that it was a king that was uh, going to be the king of the Jews. And so they traveled to what made sense to them. Well, let's go to the capital city of Jerusalem. And so they go to the capital of the city and they say, we saw the star. The star had risen. They didn't follow the star to the stable. Otherwise, they would have followed the star directly to Bethlehem. But they don't. They end up in the wrong place. They go to Jerusalem and they say, we've seen the star rise. And so we've come to the conclusion that this is about a new king and we've come to worship the new king. So here we are at the capital city of Jerusalem. And King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. So Herod is disturbed, and you can imagine why Herod would be disturbed and why everyone else would be disturbed, because if a new teacher had been born, not a big deal, because a new teacher being born, that happens all the time. There's lots of those. If a rabbi had been born, that's not that big of a deal, because there's a lot of rabbis. If a religious leader, a religious figure had been born, not a big deal, because the truth is, uh, those came and went all the time. Prophet, lots of prophets. They'd experienced that many, many times before, but a king. We have, we've come to worship the king, the newborn king. That's, that's something totally different. That signals regime change. A king signals civil unrest, maybe even civil war. A king, that starts to signal insurrection. That, that could mean for Herod, it threatened his legacy. It threatened his uh, dynasty. And see, King Herod had been reigning for 40 years. And you don't reign and keep your kingdom intact for 40 years by just sitting by and just kind of waiting and see how things play out. And so for Herod, he was ruthless and he was not about to just sit by and see how this played out. And so he, what he does next tells us so much about this idea of Jesus as the king. And so they say, we saw his star. He was disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? 
Now, this is, this is so big for us to understand. It's, it's so critical for us to understand. Herod calls together the teachers and the religious leaders, and he asks them, where is this Messiah? He knows something significant has happened. He knows by, by these wise men coming to see him, he knows by the fact that uh, there's a, there's, they're calling it a king and there's signs in the heavens, and he knows the prophecies from the Hebrew scriptures that one day God is going to send someone who will be his final king. And it will be the one who comes, and it'll be a descendant of Abraham. It'll come through the, the, the lineage of King David, and it'll be the final king. And there's this prophecy, and, and Herod knows this. And so he calls together the, the people who are smarter than him around these issues and topics and study these things. And he says, okay, tell me, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? Because something has taken place. Something significant has happened. It can only mean one thing. And why does Herod use the word Messiah? See, the, the wise men, they were just asking about a king. But Messiah is the title for God's final king. Messiah is the Hebrew equivalent of the phrase anointed one of God. And that means the one who is anointed as God's final king. In our Greek New Testament, we use the word Christ. It's the word for Christ, which means Christ is not a name. It's not a nickname. It's not a descriptor. It's actually a title that when we say Jesus Christ, we are literally saying Jesus the Christ or Jesus the king. And so the language that Herod uses here, when he asks the teachers, he says, where is this prophesied? Where is the one that was prophesied to be the Christ, God's final king? Where did, where did the prophecy say that he would be born? And unfortunately, we have allowed the person of Jesus to define the term. So when you hear the word Christ, we say, oh, that's another name for Jesus. We tend to use in sort of Christian world today the words Jesus and Christ interchangeably as if they're both uh, names for Jesus, or, or sometimes like uh, Christ is Jesus's last name, like, you know, Tim Johnson and Jesus Christ. And what we ought to do is allow the term Christ to define the person, because Christ is Jesus's title. It means Jesus, God's anointed one, or Jesus, the king. And so on Christmas, a king was sent into the world, but not just any king. And not just a king appointed by a, a prophet or appointed by a religious leader, not a king appointed by a rabbi, God's final king who was appointed by the creator of the universe. And this king was appointed by God to establish a kingdom that was not of this world, but it would be for this world. To establish a kingdom that was not of this world, but it would be in this world, that we could participate in it, an upside-down kingdom that would be characterized by others first. And Herod suspected it, and he was right to be threatened by it because he understood something that oftentimes in our modern-day culture we miss, and it's this. When a king is born, people must choose their allegiance. When a king is born, people must choose their allegiance. See... I recently came across a book. Uh, it's almost more like a, a pamphlet. It was written by C.S. Lewis, and actually it started as a series of a radio broadcasts that C.S. Lewis gave. And eventually these radio broadcasts, these short radio broadcasts were gathered together and transcribed and became this little book. It's called The Case for Christianity. And when I got to the end of this short book, what I read had a profound impact because C.S. Lewis gets right to the heart of what we're talking about today, that when a king comes into our world and makes the claims that Jesus makes, that we are forced to decide what to do with that. We're forced to decide what to do with Jesus. 
And maybe you've never spent any time in your life considering the claims of Jesus. In fact, maybe you even grew up in, a, in, a, in sort of Christian culture and, a, and you were a part of a church and um, you read the Bible and you have belief in Jesus. But you have trust in God to forgive your sins, but maybe you've never actually looked at the claim that Jesus is the king. Maybe you've never heard it put through the lens of the angel that when Jesus comes into the world, you are to name him Jesus because he will be a king. He is going to be given the throne of his ancestor, David. His, his kingdom will never end. Maybe, maybe somewhere along the way, you missed the idea when Jesus said, here's how I want you to pray. God, your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And maybe for you, you, you have a belief in Jesus and you, you trust him to forgive your sins, but you've never heard this claim that Jesus is the king, that he actually wants to be the Lord of your life. And I would respectfully submit that you take some time to investigate that claim of Jesus and respond to it appropriately. I, I can't imagine what could be a more important use of our time and our energy than to investigate the claims of Jesus and decide how I'm going to respond. Because if I'm being honest, it's so easy for me. And if you're anything like me, it's so easy for you to reduce Jesus to less than king in my life. It's so easy for me on a day-to-day -day -day basis just to make Jesus a call a friend. It's easy to reduce Jesus to a, to a conscience reliever. It's easy to redu reduce Jesus to uh, a comforter. It's easy to reduce Jesus to someone who just is the sin forgiver. It's easy to reduce Jesus to less than what he claims to be in the New Testament. And every time someone says Jesus Christ in the New Testament, they're saying Jesus the King. Jesus the King. And in the first century, what made Christians, what made followers of Jesus such a target for the Roman Empire was the fact that they had an allegiance to Jesus. It wasn't just that they had a belief in. It wasn't just that they, uh, that they uh, read some things that some of his eyewitnesses had written and started passing those things around. It was that they had an allegiance to Jesus. They had a loyalty to Jesus, the king. They had a phrase that they would use with each other, Jesus is Lord. And in the first century, this is how they would greet one another. They would greet each other and say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And it came from an, a, a phrase that was used in the Roman Empire that went like this. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And this means I'm, I'm gonna, I can no longer say Caesar is Lord. When I greet other followers of Jesus, I've got to greet them with Jesus is Lord. This means I'm a subject of his kingdom and I submit to his way of living. And the Caesars and the Herods of the world, they are totally fine if you want to have other gods and they're fine if you want to have other beliefs. In fact, Herod goes, yeah, I'll build the temple, worship God. The Herods of the world, the Caesars of the world would say, yep, uh, we've got lots of different gods and lots of different temples. Worship who you want to, believe what you want to, but I want your allegiance. I want your loyalty. You're going to bow the knee to me. You can worship whatever god you want to. You can have a belief system, whatever belief you want to, but when it comes to your allegiance, I want your allegiance. And for followers of Jesus, they could no longer say, Caesar is Lord, because their allegiance belonged to a kingdom that was not of this world and to a king that was above every other king. And Herod understood, because Herod wanted to keep his legacy intact, keep his dynasty intact, and he was not about to sit by and watch it be taken away. And he understood when a king comes into the world, people must choose their allegiance. And so here's what C.S. Lewis writes at the end of this book. He says, I wonder, I wonder whether people 
who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. In other words, it's really fascinating when you look at our culture today, even in the culture in which C.S. Lewis was a part, but even more so today, what we have is so many people in our culture today who want so many of the values of the kingdom of God. They just don't want the king. They want rightness. They want equality and justice and fairness and, and love and acceptance and all of these things that are good things that are established as a part of the kingdom of God, but they just don't want the king. They want the kingdom values without worshiping the king. And C.S. Lewis says, I wonder those who, who declare these things, those who ask for these things, those who say, God, intervene and, 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 and vanquish evil, I wonder if they realize that God is not going to come in aerosol form. It's not going to be like, psh, 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 like, fix this and fix that, but ooh, don't get any of that on me. I wonder if they realize that when, when God comes back and fully restores and renews all things, that it is not going to be so subtle. I wonder if they realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade all right, but what is the good of saying you're on his side then? When you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something it never entered your head to conceive comes crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left for this time. It will be God without disguise. In other words, C.S. Lewis says, this will not be baby Jesus showing up in a manger. This will not be Rabbi Jesus uh, teaching on a hillside. This will not be uh, the miracle worker Jesus who's healing people and walking on water. This will not be the crucified Jesus. This will be Jesus without disguise, God without disguise, coming in all of his glory with all of the full values of his kingdom. He says, this will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. And it will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realized it before or not. And then he says something that is actually written down by Peter in Peter's letter to followers of Jesus in the first century. He says, now, today, this moment is our chance to choose. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. On Christmas, a king was born. On Christmas, a king entered the world. And the question every single day for those of us who believe the question every single day for those of us who profess a faith, who a belief in Jesus, is, is he my king? Have I submitted my life to living his way, to, to, to saying, God, may your kingdom come and may your will be done here in my life as it is in heaven? Have I accepted his invitation, not simply to believe, not simply to ascribe to a belief system and not simply to have my sins forgiven, but have I have I accepted his invitation to fully participate in his kingdom. Herod believed. Herod believed that God was sending a Messiah into the world. In fact, he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said. 
Herod, it's about six miles from here. That's where it's at. That's, what's gonna, that's where this Messiah, it was said to be born. And so here's what Herod does. Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. And he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. Because Herod wanted to know the age of the infant king. And once he discovered the age of the infant king, he would act appropriately. Because he believed that a king had been sent into the world. And he was not about to surrender his will. And he was not about to give up his legacy. And he was not about to give up his dynasty. He would act accordingly. He would have his way. And so he sent them to Bethlehem to discover the location of the infant king whose kingdom would not be of this world, but it would be for this world. And because in this king, heaven met earth. The divine became human in a way that only storytellers could imagine. Then God became one of us to dwell among us, not simply so that we could get to heaven when we die, so that we could experience in this life, here and now, the kingdom values of God, the upside-down kingdom of God, where God cares deeply about every single person that he created. And this king came into a system that was infused and informed by the kingdom values of this world, where might made right, where whoever was the strongest got to make the rules, whoever had the most gold got to do things for their own benefit, that if you had power and if you had resources, you would leverage your power and your resources to benefit you and gain more power and resources so that you could just continually have more benefit. And into that world was born a king who came to reverse all of that. And the invitation, just a few years later, was extended to a group of people. Will you follow me? Will you surrender to my kingship? I, I, I want to forgive your sins. I'm going to forgive. That, that's, that's grace upon grace upon grace that we see in Jesus. But then he says, I didn't just come to be a sin forgiver. That's just where it starts. But I'm inviting you to participate in something so much bigger than that. Will you acknowledge me as more than a sin forgiver and more than a conscience cleanser and more than a good luck charm and a last resort and more than call a friend? Will, will you acknowledge me as Lord, as King? And if you do, you're invited to participate not just to believe, but to participate in the kingdom of God. And here's what's amazing. Whenever a group of people have taken that invitation seriously and they've decided, I'm going to participate in God's kingdom and live out the kingdom values, that part of the world becomes a better and a safer place because the kingdom values of our king are lived out in such a way that those who live that out see themselves through the lens of their heavenly father and the king who came to die for them. And at Christmas, we celebrate the birth of a king. And the question for me when I wake up tomorrow, and the question for you when you wake up tomorrow, and the question for every one of us when we leave this place today is, is he my king? And the question that I've got to ask myself every moment through the day that I've got to remind myself of is, is he my king? Today and in this moment, will I surrender my will to his? Will I surrender my kingdom to his? Will I not just count on him to forgive my sins, but will I participate in his kingdom here on earth? And if you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never said yes to saying, I, I want to surrender to Jesus, I acknowledge him as king, here's what I want you to hear me say. I want you to know when you say yes to Jesus, you are saying yes to the kindest, most loving, most grace-filled, others-centered king who ever lived. That he wants 
good for you because he is for you. And the reason that I know he is for you is because he laid down his life for you. And because the values of God's kingdom are reflected in the king who would sacrifice himself for the benefit of his subjects. And so Jesus was born. Heaven met earth. The divine became human. And Jesus showed us what God was like. And then, this is so amazing, even though, even though he had all of the authority of heaven and all of the power of being divine, when his enemies wanted to put him to death, Jesus did not rise up against them. He didn't use military might to overcome them. And if anybody could have, it could have been Jesus. Instead, he allows himself to be put to death. And he wins the hearts of humanity, not through military might and power, but through self-sacrificial love. Even going so far as to, in his dying breath, saying, God, forgive them. And he died. His body was laid in a tomb. And according to multiple eyewitness accounts, Jesus rose from the dead. And that means... Death is not the end. There is more to this life than this life. And you and I have been invited to participate not only in the kingdom of heaven here and now, but to be a part of God's family forever. So if you've never said yes, that's the invitation. God, forgive my sins and then help me to trust you. Help me to surrender my will and my life to your way of living, to participate today in your kingdom. And if you've already said yes to Jesus, And you're doing your best to follow him. This is the question I want us to wrestle with this week. Is he my king? Is he my king on Sunday afternoon? Is he my king on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Or or have I reduced Jesus to a box that I check on Sunday mornings? Have I reduced Jesus to a set of beliefs? Have I reduced Jesus to simply my conscience cleanser and my sin forgiver? Or have I said, no, it starts there, but God, I'm so thankful that you forgive my sins. But more, more than that, I'm, I'm grateful that you've invited me to be a part of your kingdom. And I'll submit my way of living to yours. I'll follow and reflect your kingdom values. So this week, if you've already said yes to Jesus, I invite you to think on that question this week. And I invite you to come back next week for part two. Let's pray. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times I've walked away from you. I thank you that you've never walked away from me. And God, I want to say yes to that invitation. There are those of us who want to say yes. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And then help me to surrender my life to yours, my will to yours, my kingdom to yours. Help me to trust and follow your way of living as best as I know how from this moment on. And God, for every one of us who have put our trust in you, May we move beyond just having our sins forgiven. We're so grateful for that. But there's more that you're inviting us into. And and may we be people who have surrendered our kingdom to yours. And in living that way and embracing your kingdom values, may we reflect those values to the world around us. And as each of us reflect on this message this morning, give us the wisdom to know how to apply this to our lives. And then give us the courage to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.